say, hey, just so you know that um, it's the topic that we're going to be looking at today that I work hard for y'all that I have put together that I will hand out to you at the end of the service. This sheet, and I got a bunch of them, and it says how to read Proverbs like the ant. So we're going to be looking at the ant today, but just in case you're wondering, how do you read Proverbs? This is a one-page sheet for you, and I will try to get it out there. I'll have somebody get it out there at the end so they can hand it to you on the way out if you want it. If not, that's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You just won't read Proverbs like the ant. You'll read it like the slug, which is also in our text today. All right? So I'm saying it just to remind me, to remind you, to remind me that I have it. Got it? All right. Um, so we're in Proverbs. Those of you that are wondering what, maybe you're coming back into town, people are starting to get back in town. We're doing, uh, we had a little blip in our, our preaching series. It was kind of catastrophic. Uh, uh, someone withheld their vote and it threw our three-way tie into confusion and chaos. So uh, we're still going to do the three books, but we're just going to do them consecutively, not uh, simultaneously. All right? So we're going to do like a four to six series in Proverbs, then in Isaiah, then in the life of David. Okay? All right, so I also mentioned last week, if you happen to be here, that um, I had this aspiration to be a celebrity pastor. And I want you to know that my shiny moment as a celebrity pastor has come to an abrupt end. Yes, it ended this week. Um, I, I was really, though, if I'm honest, I was really looking forward to the tell all live streams that were going to happen. I, I was wanting that to happen. I still might do those, because you could still do those maybe and not be a celebrity pastor. But you probably want to know what happened. What ended my aspirations to be a celebrity pastor? Well, so about a year ago, and this is more in the, I'm actually being serious. About a year ago, I needed a reconfirmation of my call to ministry in Waco. Uh, the leadership knows this. My family knows this. Obviously, my wife knows this. She says, honey, you need that every summer. All right, okay, okay. But this one was a little more deep. Um, there's many contributing factors, but there are two that I want to share with you. One is I was approached by this church uh, that is financially able and capable, pretty financially able and capable, and has a beautiful building, and it's in another part of Texas, and they said, well, we want you, uh, and we will give you what you need to do what you believe God's called you to do. And I, I thought, that's great. And the reason why uh, they knew about what my vision for ministry was is that they came down, sought some help, got some counseling, uh, and they know what my vision for an anchor church was in a given area. And you're saying, well, what is an anchor church, Jeff? And an anchor church is a church that builds everything around the gospel. Good news, not good advice. Everything. Everything. It's that C.S. Lewis looking at one thing, everybody looking at one thing, saying, what, you too? It's a church that everybody's saying, what, you too? All looking at the same thing. And every aspect's. From our communication and teaching down to the embodiment of relationships to the way we lead and the way we relate to ministry, the way we connect to God, connect with each other, connect to mission. Everything. Second, 
An anchor church sees the power of the gospel primarily and centrally happening through preaching and teaching, communication, where people are spoken back to life again. So Jesus shows up each Sunday. God shines on the page each Sunday. People experience Jesus with the Bible each Sunday. When the teaching and the preaching happens, Jesus shows up. Lives change on the spot. Individual lives, homes, parents, marriages, the culture, because we believe actually that what happens here on Sunday does change the world. Not just like, how do I make the linear connection between A and B in the culture? There's something cosmic and ultimate that happens when the power of the gospel breaks into this world's realm on a Sunday through preaching and teaching. And an anchor gospel church in an area gets that. What ends up happening is that lives are changing, relationships are changing, uh, we're connecting, there's mission, and people start begging to come to church. And the expectation of church is not like, I'll never forget the first time I wanted to go to church, and it was a church that was an anchor gospel church. It's the first time I set foot in it, and for, what was it? 30 years, 30 years of being a churched person, I turned to my wife and said, I think we're home. I I want to go to church for the first time in my life. An anchor gospel church creates, through the power of the gospel, people beg to go to church. Sunday buzzes with the expectation that Jesus actually shows up and meets with me and meets with us. Third thing an anchor gospel church does is it reaches and renews as many people as possible with the gospel. There's no false sense between evangelism and discipleship. I can't tell you how many times when I was starting this church, people would come up to me that were excited about evangelism. You're going to be an evangelistic church, right? And I'm like, yeah, because the gospel reaches and renews people. Are you a person? Yeah, then it's going to reach you. And then I have people come up that are into discipleship and and these 500-page manuals and getting serious in doctrine. You're about that, right? I'm like, yeah, we're going to be about that because the gospel reaches and renews people. Are you a person? Then it's going to reach and renew you, Christian, unchurched, churched, overchurched. I don't care who you are. That means that lives change. That means communities change. That means homes change. That means people start needing less and loving more. That means people make friends so community happens. That means people make friends and have gospel conversations so mission happens. In other words, what happens with an anchor gospel church is that there's this huge gospel footprint that just steps into a community and impacts the whole community. That's the vision of an anchor gospel church. And then fourth, it's led by a unified, gutsy, grace leadership team and staff. Friends, not power brokers and policy holders and makers. Uh, Good teammates, not blues brothers that are on missions from God. Uh, Different, heck yeah, but unified. Gutsy, you bet, but graced. Disagree, 
Of course. Do you disagree with your wife? But friends, fixed, fixed in the vision, fixed in our doctrine, but flexible in our forms to see them implemented. And then messy, sinful people, yes, leaders, staff, yes, but redemptive. They knew this because I trained them in it. These people came down and I trained them in it. Next thing you know, they turn around and says, we want you to do this. They also knew my desire because I told them in these times, I want to train pastors and I want to train church leaders. They knew that too. And then the second contributing factor was this. Um, this is more deeply personal. There are times in your life, and I was telling this to Shepherd. there's times in your life as a Christian and as a, a, a leader, a church leader, God is always holding your hand. Like he's always walking with you holding your hand. He's never not. If you're a Christian, he's never not holding your hand. If you're a minister or a church leader, he's never not holding your hand. But there are times... You know this, parents. There are times when you pick your kid up and you hug him and you look him in the eye. I love you. And then you set him back down and you hold their hand. I needed him to pick me up and hug me in my call to Waco. So what happened? Mission happened. He picked me up, and he hugged me. Well, how did he do that, Jeff? Well, he did it relationally. He did it with you. I realized I can't, I can't leave you, and I don't want to leave you. He did it missionally with Waco. I couldn't leave Waco, and I didn't want to leave Waco. I'm committed to swing for the fence to see an anchor gospel church in Waco. That doesn't mean it happens, but it does mean I'm committed to swing for the fence. He did it personally. A long time ago when I was in seminary, I heard about this guy named uh, Nicholas Zimfendorf, and that's why Hannah used to say what he used to say. And it's this Moravian leader uh, the Moravian Church, uh, I had to look it up, and this was really cool. It was founded by John Hoos, who was a forerunner of the Reformation. I saw John Hoos when I did some missionary work in Prague one, one summer. His statue is like huge, but no, all the birds on it, and everybody walks by it not knowing what this city actually was founded on. Uh, but anyhow, Colin brought up in a conversation Zinfendorf and what he said. And what Zinfendorf used to do is he would train his pastors and train his leaders, and he would send them out to places, and this is how he trained them. He said, preach the gospel and be forgotten. And it stuck. And it struck. And it's deep, deep now in my bones. And it's actually branded on me. Some of you are wondering what this means. Preach the gospel and be forgotten. God picked me up, and he hugged me. If you're a minister of the gospel, well, here's the question for our text. What's your mission? What's your mission? What's your mission in life? 
what's your mission in life? Because you have one. If you're a church leader, if you're a minister of the gospel, you only have one mission. Preach the gospel and be forgotten. There are no such things as celebrity pastors. That's a joke. If you're not a pastor, though, what's your mission? Proverbs says, ask the ant. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So, Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, any officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, O sluggard? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want or need will come upon you like an armed man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we thank you for this word. Uh, Actually, I want to thank you. I'm absolutely surprised that I'm liking Proverbs. I didn't think I would. I am. So you know that. Thank you. I pray that you would shine on the page, that Jesus, you would show up, and there would be change on the spot, friendship on the spot, different relationships on the spot, and mission on the spot. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your mission? Proverbs says, ask the ant. Okay, so let's look at verse 6. Go to the ant. Do you see that? The ant knows the mission. It's clear to his mind. The ant feels the mission. It's real in his heart. The ant is energized by the mission. It's in his hands. It's in his actions. It's in what he does or she does. Are there genders with ants? I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Proverbs 6, 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. See that second part? Remember I was telling you, I'm going to give you, because I am a geek, I'm a grammar geek, I'm all of the above. Remember what happens in Proverbs is a thing called parallelism. And a parallelism means you're going to have an idea or an image given to you, and then there's going to be another idea or image given to you. And parallelism is saying, how are these two related? What is the second doing to the first? Is it contrasting the first? Is it answering the first? Is it expanding the first? So when we look at go to the ant, O sluggard, what do we think it's doing? It's definitely contrasting, right? So it literally goes like this. If you look up the word in the Hebrew lexicon, it's literally go Go to the ant, O lazy one. Uh, Some of the words that are used in the lexicon are frozen, heavy, stuck, not moving. Also is used in this is that there's a languishing happening here. There's a decreating process that's going on with this person. Uh, There is a fading and a falling to pieces. In other words, the person's not moving, the person's undoing, the person's decreating. O sluggard means they're stuck, they're frozen. They're not working. Go to the ant, oh, non-working one. So why would a sluggard, why would you and me, why would we go to the ant? Well, according to this passage, because the ant knows the mission. According to this passage, the ant knows work. 
because ants work. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, any officer or ruler. In other words, there's no external power controlling the ant like human approval or the fear of the man. Or what else did I write down here? Or an institution. Or the state. It also means this. It also includes not having some external ideology keep you from working. Like calling it anti-American or racist or immoral. Verse 8, she, the ant, prepares, works for her bread, which is the symbol of life in the ancient world. So this is, not, this is not just an incidental thing. This is the very essence, the very sustenance. You don't have it, you die. In summer and gathers or works for a food in the harvest. So verses 6 through 8 is called, I'm calling it the law of the ant. The law of the ant is work. Ants work. So Proverbs, the Bible, God says to you right now, it's saying to you right now, work is your mission. Work is your mission. Work makes you feel alive. Work, your work loves others. Work, your work waters the world. What is your mission? Proverbs says, ask the ant. Go to the ant. The ant says, work. Some of you are thinking, but I hate work. <laughs> right? It's like, I hate my job. I mean, I wish I was a trust fund baby. I wish I didn't have to work a day in my life, you're thinking. I know it. Who doesn't think that? Oh, I wish I had a trust fund. Why is work my mission? Why is work my mission? I just spent some time hunting uh, with someone who grew up in one of the most wealthy families in the world. World, I said. The siblings are now fighting for the money. The wives are now fighting over the money. The mistresses are now fighting over the money. Everyone's fighting over the money. But you know what he wants? He just wants the land that we were hunting on. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, but the billions! It's almost like he was reading my mind, and I could tell he was probably reading my brother's mind, too, because I knew my brother was thinking the same thing. Because we're sitting around this campfire, and he says, why would I want the money? Why would I want something that has made my whole family utterly miserable? There's nothing but time. He goes on to say, there's nothing but time. There's nothing but emptiness. There's nothing but your sad self. There's nothing but mental illness. There's nothing but depression. 
There's nothing but addictions, brokenness, wrecked relationships, sheer misery. Why would I want that? Yeah, but the billions I'm thinking. Why is work your mission? Why is it your mission? Why would we need to go to an ant? Why do we, I'm never going to look at ants the same. I step on them all the time. I spray stuff on them. I kill them. I want them to burn. I light them on fire. I mean, now I'm like, oh. Do I have to like them? I'm not going to like the ones that bite. They're dawn. They're toast. The fire ants. The Texas fire ants, I still will blow them up. I still will incinerate them. I still will poison them. I will kill them all. But the others... The other words I have, a, I have a new appreciation for. Why is work your mission? Here's the answer. Because it's how life works. It's just how life works. It's called the law of the ant. God made you. God made work. God made you to work. It's woven into your very DNA. It's woven into the very fabric of the universe. It's the law of the ant. In fact, in the very beginning in the garden, before there was sin, before there was the fall, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. To work it. <laughs> the Bible tells us over and over again in those early days, tells us over and over again, God looked at what he made, God looked at what he designed, God looked at what he's created, and it says, and God saw that it was good. In other words, work is good. It's good because what God did is that he took pieces of his glory and embedded it in work. He took concentrations of his goodness and packed it into work. He took proportions of his beauty and his joy and his delight and he packed it into work. In other words, when God looks at work, he sees himself in it. You know that little phrase, to glorify God? Everybody gets all tripped over what that means. And it was Dr. Hannah that actually opened up to me what it means. For something to glorify God, God has to see himself in it. God sees himself in your work. Bible expert Tremper Longman says, in contrast to Greek mythology where the gods live a life of celestial loafing, the Bible pictures God himself as a ceaseless worker. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the consummator. He created, worked, Providentially, he controls it all now, works. He's the redeemer, worked. And right now, he's the consummator by his spirit, applying what Jesus has done. He's working ceaselessly. Bible expert, another one, Paul Minier, says, God of the Bible is preeminently a worker. Specific images of God working include composer, musician, performer, metal worker, potter, garment maker, gardener, farmer, shepherd, tent maker, builder, athlete, in case you're wondering, 
artist, leader, ruler, king, teacher, employer, wealthy businessman. Yes, wealthy people. Poor servant. Yes, common laborer, of course, warrior, commander of warriors, landowner, ordinary laborer. In other words, these images of God are also obviously embedded into imaging him as image bearers. Their work, their good work. God sees himself in your work. And some people are wondering too, because probably, well, and I don't say probably, the, the, the greatest coach in Lorena history just retired this week. But he's a much better friend, husband, father, and church leader. And so, what does it mean then to retire? Uh, the Bible is basically says your work never ends in this life. You never stop. There's no, ultimately, there's no sense of retirement. There's just an end of one thing and the beginning of something else. There's an end of one mission or a change in mission, and then you get a new mission. There's never an end to work, not even and even on the last day you're on this planet. And some of you might know what I'm talking about. Even if all you are doing the last day on this earth is suffer, suffering is work. Just ask Jesus. So God sees himself in your work. That's why there are positive commands to work. If he sees himself in your work, he wants you to work. It glorifies him. And you need to, to feel alive. And you need to, to love others. And you need to, to water this world. It's just how it works. So that's why there are positive commands. Like Paul says, be ready for honest, any honest work. Well, what kind of work? He said, any. But, but Paul, what kind of work? I just said any, Jeff. Okay. Colossians, he says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Okay, whatever you do. It's pretty comprehensive. The other, he says, live, work to aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you. Okay, these are positive commands. And he also says, work quietly. Okay, what if you're a coach? <laughs> Does anyone know a quiet coach? Uh, no. But there's also positive commands and there are negative commands. If God sees himself in work, he's going to positively command us to do it. And then he's going to have negative commands to not not work. Look at verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and need will come upon you like an armed man. What happens when we don't work? What happens when we don't work is simple. Poverty. Literally, of course, but also comprehensively. In other words, poverty of spirit. You don't feel alive if you don't work. Why is everybody so depressed today? 
A lot of it's because no one's working. There's poverty for others. Others aren't loved, starting with your family. Poverty for the world. The world isn't watered. Look at the communities and countries of the world where there is no work. It just gets that simple. We make it so hard and we make it so ideologically. Sometimes we just need to bring work into places. There's also a shocking reveal in verses 9 through 11. Do you see the shocking reveal? It's in verse 11. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You might become a robber if you don't work. You might become an armed man if you don't work. Literally, like a criminal, and then metaphorically, like a parasite. You just feed off your family, your community, the culture, even the state. What is your mission? The Proverbs says, ask the ant. Go to the ant. The ant says, work. Some of you are thinking, but I'm not the ant. I'm not a good ant. I fail at work. Please hear me. This is the work of the law of the ant in you. And it's a good work. The law of the ant, the law of work, is designed in a fallen world among fallen people to actually make us feel, I'm not a good ant. Because you're not and I'm not. The law of the ant possesses illuminating power. It shows you real specifics. So the law of the ant comes into our lives. It comes to sinful people And it does a couple of things. Remember, it's coming to people that have a nature in them, so it's going to reveal the nature. But it's also coming to people that do specific actions, and it's going to reveal those specific actions. Sometimes in the Christian world, we only treat the actions. We forget there's a nature. And so we think, well, someone, I mean, I've been asked many times, what if I don't have any specifics to confess during the confession time of church? And I'm like, that's fine. You, You might not have any specifics, but you have a nature, And you can always confess that nature, right? And so the law of the ant is at work in your life when you come to this realization that you're not the ant and you're not a good ant and that you fail at the law of work. And so it might give you specifics like, I play video games all day. It might do that. It also might give the specifics like, I steal from the company, literally, or my time or my effort or the quality of my work. Or it might give you specifics like, you don't play hard when you play sports. You loaf. You don't work hard when you get out on the field. You don't give it your best. You loaf. It might be specifics like, I don't do my best as a student. It might be specifics like, I don't do the hard work of relationships. When, heart, when difficulty happens in a relationship, when difficulty happens in a marriage, when difficulty happens in a family, I don't do the hard work. I loaf. I'm lazy. I'm a sluggard. It's too rough. It might be stuff like specific as 
I'm a trust fund baby, and all I do is self-gratify. You can still be a trust fund baby and not self-gratify. But then it can show you your own nature, like I'm lazy by nature. I'm lazy by nature as a student, as an athlete, as a pastor, as a businessman, as a mom, as a husband. I'm just lazy by nature. I don't work. I don't work at it. It might be I seek comfort by nature. I just... By nature, I need comfort. By nature, I want to be comfortable. So I want to be comfortable relationally. I want to be comfortable personally. I want to be comfortable culturally, vocationally. When there's a lot of difficult stuff going on, you just want to put your head in the sand. I just want comfort. Please give me comfort by nature. And it could be this, too, that when we get criticized, we quit. We think the criticism is the source, but the criticism is just revealing a nature that wants to quit. That's all. So by nature, it reveals our nature. So the law of the ant actually wants to make you feel, wants to make you think, wants to make you say things like Paul says when the law of the ant got him. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that is the most spectacular work of the law of the ant in a human being's life. And it's forgotten today. The law of the ant is committed to making you feel it and experience it. I'm not the ant. Some of you are thinking, but I am the ant. That's me. I am the ant. Dang, aren't I? Right, honey? (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I'm not like those slugs. Please hear me. The law of the ant says to you, yes, you are. For example, when you work for the sake of human approval, the fear of failure, to justify yourself, to build an identity not for the sake of work. In other words, work was made for the work. Remember? God sees himself in the work. He doesn't see himself in your need of approval to do the work. He doesn't see himself in your fear of failure while you're doing the work. He sees himself in the work, its own sake. But all of a sudden, if I'm doing work for the sake of other things, I take verse 7 and I read it this way. Put up verse 7 if we can, Malachi. There we go. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, we change it to be this. Because of the chief, because of the officer, because of the ruler of human approval, fear of failure, self-justification, and achieved, not received identity. Keep going. She prepares her bread. I work. Or when you overwork, when you become a workaholic, you break the law of work, because you're not doing work for work's sake. You are now trying to get something out of work. It was never meant to give you. This is why Paul says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, do the very same things. The law of the ant is committed to making every human being think, feel, experience, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? All of us. So why does the law of the ant do this? Why does it have this spectacular work of illumination, of revealing us, revealing our specific actions and revealing the nature that's in us? Answer to drive you to the wisdom of God. Remember, listen to Paul again. This is kind of going to be our, I don't have it up here, but this is, listen to it. This is, this is the moniker overarching text for Proverbs because you've got to resolve something right now. Is Proverbs a Christian book or not? You have to resolve that. You have to answer that. Paul says yes. And this is how he says it. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That is, here's what wisdom of God is. That is, wisdom is, he's your righteousness. He's your sanctification. He's your redemption. So that, ant. If you want to boast, boast in this. Boast in the Lord. So, when the law of the ant does its work and you start realizing you're not the ant or you're a very bad ant and you fail all the time as an ant, comprehensively, certainly we're talking about the work of your vocation or job, but we're also talking about the work as a husband, father, friend, community, athlete, so on, student. When it does its work and you now are saying, oh no, I'm not. Jesus is the ant. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus is not only the worker, he's the only one that worked for you. He's the only one that achieved and accomplished the law of work perfectly in all areas of life, ceaselessly, perfectly, perpetually. And he turns around and he gives you his righteousness. And don't miss this because what Paul is saying in this passage when he says he's your redemption that means he's also the slug. That he became the slug that you and I are in nature and in our specific practices that we commit. And on the cross, he became the ultimate cosmic slug. And that's why he languished. And that's why he decreated. And that's why he went to ultimate falling to pieces as he pays the debt for being a slug in nature and in practice. In other words, I mean, what would be the, what would be the consequence of not working? I mean, think about it. I mean, if you just think about it, what's the justice? What's the consequence of not working? Poverty, non-working, nothingness, non-existence, frozen, paralyzed, Jesus became all of that. 
if you build your messy life around this, if you grow in realizing that Jesus is the wisdom of God, your righteousness, uh, your redemption, your deliverance, when you grow in that, when you start seeing how big and bright that is and you start trusting that, not just to become a Christian, but as a Christian, what ends up happening is you change. You get set free to work. And that's why Paul says he's your sanctification. If you try to find sanctification in another way, it'll never happen. You will do what's called works salvation. You will work to be loved and accepted. You will not work because you are loved and accepted. What's your mission? Proverbs says, ask the ant. Go to the ant. The ant says, work. Work, everybody. Work. Work in every area of your life. Work. You're free to work. Go to work. When you work, God sees himself in it. When you work, you feel alive. When you work, you practically love others. When you work, you water the world. Work. But I'm not a good ant. And the wisdom of God says, Jesus is the ant for you. Jesus is the slug for you. You are free. 